If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Luke chapter 24, the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. And uh, our theme as we walk through the Word this morning is around the resurrected King. Uh, Jesus Christ is the resurrected King. And in just, just a few moments, we're going to walk through Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, and we are going to see, um, if you put all the Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll see this is actually the fourth appearance of Jesus on Easter Sunday, on that very first Easter Sunday. And this conversation that these two followers uh, of Jesus have with the resurrected King. Now, as you're turning there, I had the opportunity this past Tuesday, a very good friend of mine had come in town to visit. Uh, we had the opportunity to serve down in Florida together. Uh, and he's just one of those, just, he's just a really, really close, close brother. And I love this man. And, and he came up and he was in town. Um, he works for Compassion International. I don't know if maybe you've heard of that organization, but he, he serves with them. And so he was in town uh, and we got to see all of Olive Branch uh, and got on some good catfish that day. And then we, we showed him around the, the campus and everything. And then he was staying in Memphis. He was like, I've never been to Memphis. I'd love to see Memphis. And I was like, well, let's do this. So we got my truck and we just rode all around Memphis in the course of about an hour. We saw as much as you could see. We went, of course, all downtown, AutoZone Park, Peabody, Mud Island, uh, St. Jude, Graceland, uh, all, all those places. And, and we saw them all from the ground level. And I, I grew up in Corinth, Mississippi, so not far. And just had been to Memphis many, many times. So a lot of these places feel like I've, I've seen like hundreds of times. Just I'm very familiar, very familiar. And perhaps you are too. But our last stop was the Pyramid. And, uh, and so, so we landed there. And if you've been to the pyramid lately, it's not what it looked like back in the day uh, when the Memphis State Tigers used to play in there. Uh, it is a Bass Pro Shops now. And, and if you go in there, there is an elevator that will take you all the way to the top of the pyramid and you can walk out on an observation deck. And I have been itching to go to the observation deck. And so what better time than like right now? So, so we're here and I'm like, Let's jump in the elevator. Let's go up there. And so we went up and that elevator's really high up there. <laughs> I didn't realize just how high it was, but we went up there. And as we went up, everything below us got smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you step out on that observation deck at the top of the pyramid. And what's amazing is this, is that each of those kind of landmarks I shared, I've seen a hundred times, very familiar. I saw them on a ground level. But I have never taken that ride up to the top and literally see how everything fits together. That all of these places that we saw on the ground level, oh, there's this, there's that. You can't quite see Graceland, but it's somewhere over there in those trees over there. And you see, you can see the skyboxes from the Liberty Bowl. Like you can see how all of this fits together and paints a much bigger picture. And it communicates one message. And that message is, this is Memphis. There's just one message. All these individual things pieced together. You see the larger picture of what this is all about. It's all about Memphis. So why do I share that? I share that because that's what Jesus is going to, he's going to, he's going to take these two followers through a Bible study. And what he's going to do is he's going to take scriptures and prophecy from the Old Testament 
And these would have been prophecies and teachings from the Old Testament that honestly, these guys probably knew by heart. They had been there hundreds of times. It was very familiar territory. They understood the prophecies and all these kind of things. But Jesus is going to take them on a, on a figurative elevator ride. And he's going to take them up to the top. And he's going to let them and help them see how all of the Old Testament, all of the stories, all of the prophecy, all of the truth that is provided in the Old Testament, they are all there to point to one clear message. And that message is that Jesus Christ, the son of God is the Messiah. And he's the only one who has the power to forgive sin, to give you peace with God and to give you life and life to the full. And so we're going to go on that elevator ride with them. But just to set a little context, Luke 24, if you were to read verse one of Luke 24, here's what it would say. It would say this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. And so I share that because the context is this is the very first Easter. This is the very first Easter. This is the, this is resurrection Sunday. And so this was early when the ladies went to the tomb and they discovered the tomb was empty. They ran back and they told everybody, Peter and John had to see it for themselves. They went, the tomb is empty. So all of this is taking place. Meanwhile, this is a little bit later in the day, and this is what would be the fourth post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in this day. And your Bible says in Luke 24, verse 13, the Bible says that very day, Resurrection Sunday, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking with each other about, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So what, what all had happened? A whole lot had happened. A whole lot. These were, these were people, they weren't a part, these disciples, they weren't the, kind of a part of the original 12 disciples or now the 11 since Judas's betrayal. But no doubt they probably would have been there the, the, the week prior on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. This is the, the triumphal entry of Jesus where he fulfills prophecy by sitting on a donkey and riding into Jerusalem and everybody's waving palm branches and they're shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so they were, they were, they were most likely there. They were there. And when they got word that Judas, one of the 12 had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They were there when they got word that Christ had been betrayed, that Christ had been arrested they were there for all of the trials that took place, trial after trial after trial. They were there when Jesus Christ on Good Friday, what we celebrated just a couple days ago, what we remember as Good Friday, this would have been the day that the resurrected king placed a 300 pound cross and drug that cross 650 yards to be crucified to pay the price for our sin. They were there when Christ was placed in a borrowed tomb. And here they are, it's Jerusalem. They're leaving Jerusalem and all the events of Passover. All the Jews from that area had been in Jerusalem, the great city to celebrate the Passover feast. All the while, Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb had been crucified for our sin. And he was placed in the tomb. And that's all the things that had happened. <laughs> 
and just over that past week. And so they're talking and they're headed back home. They're headed to Emmaus. It's about seven miles away. And the Bible says in verse 15 that while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. This is, this is incredible because I want us to understand that Jesus in his grace and in his love pursued these two followers. They didn't, they didn't win some good person of the year award. They didn't win perfect attendance for going to the synagogue as a, as a Jew and growing up. They didn't, this wasn't because they had memorized a whole lot and they knew a lot of answers to a lot of Bible trivia. This was the fact that God in his grace pursued them, pursuing a relationship with them. And I want us to be encouraged about that as we gather this morning, that if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, can we just go back and be reminded of that time and that place where we were overwhelmed that God in his grace and his love pursued us in his love and in his grace pursuing a relationship. And for the, maybe you consider yourself a, a non-believer and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Even the fact that we gather here today and we gather in the word, this is just another reminder of God communicating his love and his pursuit of a personal relationship with you. And so he is pursuing these, these brothers. Verse 16, the Bible says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now here's what's interesting. They were not expecting to see the resurrected Jesus. Matter of fact, we'll learn they were very sad. Matter of fact, we're going to learn that, that their hopes had kind of been washed away. Their hopes were buried when Jesus was put in the tomb because Jesus wasn't who they thought he was going to be. He didn't do what he thought they, that they he didn't do what they thought he would do. He's not the Messiah that, that they thought he was going to be. And, and so they're all, they're all kind of sad and worked up. And so Jesus is pursuing them and they didn't recognize him. And, and I think about the show Undercover Boss. I don't know if y'all have seen that show, uh, but, but basically they take the CEO or the owner of a, a probably a large company and, and they put typically really bad wigs on them. And if they're a guy, they put really bad facial hair on them. And the whole deal is they are going undercover into their, their businesses and they're getting on the ground level because they want to know what's really happening. They want to know what's really going on. Now, now, Jesus Christ is God. He knows everything. He's not being surprised by what's going on. However, he is coming to them and he's going to ask them questions because he wants them to process what's going on in their world. How are they process, processing the events of what's going on? Verse 17 says, and he, Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, and I love this, what things? <laughs> he knows everything. The events that took place were all about him. He understood what was going on, but he is the ultimate question asker. If you look at Jesus in the New Testament and you look at his interactions with people, think about his conversations with the woman at the well. They begin with questions. 
Think about his conversation in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, the, the, the Jewish high priest, the Pharisee. And what does he do? He asks questions. Jesus is the ultimate question asker. And what he's, what he's wanting them to be able to share openly is what, what are you thinking about everything that's happening? What, what, did you, what do you perceive? What's going on? Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was going to be the one. We had hoped that he would be the redeemer. In other words, they had this idea in their mind of what Jesus should look like, what Jesus should do, and how he should do it. And a part of their plan of how they think God should work and how Jesus should work is that he's the conquering king. He's the one that's going to come in and conquer. He's the warrior king. He's the one who is going to be crowned the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. Like he's the one, they were under Roman tyranny. And so, so he's going to be the one that's going to overthrow the Roman government and, and, and set, us, set us free. But here's the thing. Jesus absolutely is the conquering king. He is absolutely the warrior king. But the Bible also teaches us in the Old Testament that he will come again and reign as king of kings and lord of lords, but he first comes as the suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 15, the old, the old Testament prophet Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. The Bible says, by his wounds, we are healed. So Jesus didn't quite fit what they thought Jesus should do and look like. And so they're sad. And so they're walking along the journey. And the Bible says in verse 21, it says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us, that would have been Peter and John, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So if we would have started back in the beginning of Luke 24. Evidently, these guys were a part of the conversation when the women came back from the tomb. And they're like, he's, he's not there. But in Luke chapter 24, verse 11 the Bible says as they're processing what these ladies have come back and said, they say, but these words seem to be an idle tale and they did not believe. And so they're walking back to Emmaus. They are sad. They are conflicted. There's tension. They're struggling. They're processing. They don't know what to make of all of this. And in this moment, Jesus could have revealed himself just, just like I am Jesus. But instead, he's going to reveal who he is through his word. And I think that's encouraging for all of us today. Because ultimately, it is through his word that Jesus reveals who he is. And so he's going to take these guys on a Bible 
study. And he's going to show how all of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of Jesus in that time, the New Testament was being written. (laughs) And so the, the Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. He's going to take the Bible and he's going to take the Old Testament and he's going to show them how he is the fulfillment of prophecy, how he is the Messiah. And so in verse 25, the Bible says, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What I would give to have a manuscript of the first Bible study on Easter. He walked them through. He walked them through the familiar prophecy, the familiar passages, things that they on a ground level had perhaps heard all of their lives. And yet for the first time, Jesus figuratively is going to take them on the elevator and he's going to take them all above the entire Old Testament. And he's going to show how all of these things fit together to point ultimately to him as the Messiah. Jesus refers in the Gospels to the Old Testament 64 times. The Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. And so he starts with Moses. If you were to open up your Bible to the first few books of the Bible, you would see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're all written by Moses. And so it could have been as he began with Moses, he might have gone to Genesis chapter three, where it talks about how the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, pointing to the defeat of our enemy Satan. He could have gone to Genesis chapter 12 and talked about how through the seed of Abraham, the entire world would be blessed. He could have gone to Exodus chapter 12, where just earlier of the week, the Jews would celebrate the great feast of Passover. And he would walk them through the great miracle of the Old Testament. How for those Jews in the Old Testament, God's people that they were to to slaughter a lamb without spot or blemish. And they would take the blood of the lamb and they would place it on the doorpost of their home. And that way, when judgment and wrath came, those who were under the blood were spared the wrath of God. Could it be that he is pointing to himself as the true once and for all Passover lamb, the lamb of God, who John said takes away the sins of the world. It could have been over in Numbers chapter 21 where the people of God were wandering through the wilderness and they were stiff-necked and they were, they were angry at God. They're turning their backs on God. And so God sends judgment to them in the form of serpents that are striking those Israelites. And so they run to Moses and they go to Moses. And they're, Moses, intercede for us. We'll do anything, whatever it takes. And what does God do? God says, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to take the cursed serpent and place it on a pole, place the curse on the pole, lift it up. And when they see and put their eyes on the curse that is on the pole, they will be healed. 
In John chapter 3 in the Gospels, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And here's what he says in John 3, verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Old Testament points to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. If, if matter of fact, here, here's uh, a gentleman by the name of Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science, or excuse me, Science Speaks. Science Speaks, and it gives an illustration that one person, one man would fulfill eight, just eight of the Old Testament prophecies. What are the odds that one person would fulfill, would fulfill just eight of the Old Testament prophecies? And here's the number. It is one in 10 to the 17th power chance that that would happen. So take a 10, put 17 zeros, and it's one in that many that that could happen. And I actually had a friend from the 8 a.m. service come back to me and said, do you know what that number's called? I said, I do not. It is called 100 quadrillion. There's a one in 100 quadrillion chance that one person would fulfill just eight of those prophecies. So he takes the picture of this. Stated, any Texans in the house? I see, I see one hand. Okay. All right, I see two. All right, we got some Texans. Anybody been to Texas? It's a big state, right? Here's, here's an illustration. Take the entire state of Texas. Place a silver dollar one by one across the surface area of the state of Texas. And if you were to put 100 quadrillion silver dollars in the state of Texas, it would fill the state of Texas two feet deep. Now take one of those coins and make a mark on it. Throw it somewhere in Texas, mix it all around, then take a willing contestant, blindfold them, send them into Texas, and the odds that they would pick up that marked coin is one in 100 quadrillion chances that they would do it. And that is just fulfilling eight of the prophecies. A to fill 16 prophecies, it's one in 10 to the 45th power. You want to keep adding some more? One in 10 to the 157th power. The conservative, the conservative count of Christ fulfilling messianic prophecy in the Old Testament is conservatively 300. That in Genesis 3, the Messiah is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, that in Genesis 12, 3, that he would come from the seed of Abraham and would bless all nations. Deuteronomy 18, 15, he would be the prophet like Moses to whom God said, we must listen. Micah 5, 2 says he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Isaiah 7, 14 says he would be born of a virgin. 2 Samuel 7, 7, 16 says that he would have a throne, a kingdom and a dynasty, a house starting with King David that would last forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, he would call, be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and would possess an everlasting kingdom. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, righteous and having salvation, coming with gentleness. Isaiah 53, 5, he would be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 9, he would die among the wicked ones, but be buried with the rich. Psalm 16, 10, he would be resurrected from the grave, for God would not allow his holy one to suffer decay. Daniel 7, 13, 14, he would come again from the clouds of heaven as the son of man. Malachi 4, 2, he would 
be the son of righteousness for all who would revere him and look for him and his coming. And Zechariah 12, 10, he is the one whom Israel will one day recognize as the one they pierced. And I share all of that simply to say, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one who was promised, the one who the Old Testament is all about. Jesus is the Messiah and he's the only one who has the power to forgive sin and to rescue us from sin's penalty and to give life and life to the full. So I encourage you in this, be reminded today, God pursues us in his love. God is pursuing you. He's pursuing a personal relationship with you. And that Jesus reveals himself to us through in the world through his word. That's what he did, taking these two, these two followers on a Bible study. And he's shown how the word points to him. And that our love compels us to go and share this good news with others. I, I wrap up here, verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if they were as if they were as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. In that moment, it all clicked. They see who he is. They see he's the promised one. They see he's the Messiah. They see that he is the promised one who can bring salvation, not from Rome, but from our sin. And they see it and it all makes sense to them. And then the Bible says in verse 31, and he vanished from their sight. <laughs> Just like that. They're like, oh, it makes sense now. He's He's moving on. He's on a mission. He's on a mission. Verse 32, they said to each other, can you imagine? <laughs> they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? It was their word that was being pierced by the authoritative, inspired Truth without any mixture of error word that he shared about himself. In verse 33, they rose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11, those disciples and those who were with them gathered together saying, and maybe you've heard of this, the Lord has risen indeed. <laughs> In other words, ladies, I know y'all were the first ones there this morning. And Peter and John, I know y'all kind of had a foot race to get there and he wasn't there. But let me just let you know, he has risen indeed. I've seen him. I've seen him. I've seen him. And he appeared to Simon in verse 35, and they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, to which I am reminded Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So as we gather under the word today, God is reminding himself of who he is. 
and of his worthiness and that he is pursuing a love relationship with his people. And so as we wrap up today, I want us to have the opportunity to hear a living testimony of one life that was changed by God's pursuit and God's love and the power of his word. He is a man that I deeply, deeply respect. He is a man that I deeply, deeply love. And it is not just because he's my father-in-law and I want to stay on the good side, right? It is, it is because he loves Jesus. It's because he loves the Lord. And every, I want us to hear this, every testimony is powerful. And every testimony is unique. He is going to share his testimony. And he is sharing his testimony as a Christian. He's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a Christian. But he wasn't always a Christian. He grew up in a Jewish family. He is a first generation Jewish believer. He's the only believer in his family. And he is going to come and he's going to share his road to Emmaus and how he came to faith in Christ. So if you'll join me in welcoming my father-in-law, Mr. Harvey Kornstein, he's going to come and share this morning. All right. I love you, brother. Love you. Good morning. Good morning. Every believer in Jesus has got to have a road to Emmaus experience. It is a time and place when you realize that Jesus, who really Jesus is, and that you need to call upon him as Lord. My road to Emmaus was not from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It was from Miami, Florida, to Gainesville. But like the two in the Bible, I too was born and raised in a Jewish home with a Jewish family, Jewish friends, and immersed in Jewish culture. In Miami, I spent Sunday school at the synagogue every, every week, starting at the age of four. I learned the Hebrew prayers, the he Jewish customs, and holidays and traditions. I learned the Bible. Of course, that was the Old Testament. I learned it very well, the, um, especially the first five books. Um, we call them the, the um, five books of Moses. And um, we learned all about the... the um, Heroes of the Bible, especially Moses, he was everyone's favorite. I started Hebrew school when I was eight years old and learned how to read and write in Hebrew. At age 13, I, I came of age by having my bar mitzvah, according to Jewish writings, customs, and traditions. There at the temple, I recited many Hebrew prayers and read and chanted readings from the Holy Torah, which are the big scrolls that they have written by scribes that have the five books of Moses in it. And um, they are in the ark of every synagogue. 
I was really a, a very good kid. I made good grades. I, I stayed out of trouble. At 16, um, I got a job um, after school and on weekends and everything. I was an usher at a movie theater. That was a few miles from my house. And, and after a year of doing this, a beautiful 16-year-old girl began to work at that same movie theater as the candy girl. Her name was Marcy Cook. Not Cookfarb, not Cookstein, not Cookberg, just Cook. She was a shiksa. A shiksa is a Gentile girl. She was from North Carolina with a really strong Southern accent. On September 5th, 1969, we had our first date. It didn't take very long for us to realize that we had found the person that we were going to marry. It's hard to believe, but I was 17 and she was 16. I had committed the unpardonable Jewish sin. I fell in love with the shiksa. Marcy's parents were fascinated by the idea. When I first met them, I was a novelty. And I remember, seriously, I remember Marcy's mom saying, I think one other time I met a Jew. <laughs> Isn't that true, Fred? My, my parents protested and did almost everything that they could, could to separate us. They, however, didn't want to drive us together by persecuting us too much. They figured that we were still young and the chances of these two actually getting married were very slim. After all, they were, we were very different, like oil and water. We came from different, different places, different worlds, literally different worlds. She had Christmas, I had Hanukkah. She had Easter, I had Passover. She went to church on Sunday, I went to synagogue on Saturday. She and her family ate pinto beans with cornbread and chip, chip beef on biscuits, while my family ate lox and other smoked fish with bagels. Brisket, never barbecued, <laughs> as well as kugel and potato latkes. By November, we knew that we were going to get married. After we dated for about a year, I went, you know, I was a year ahead of her in, in school. And after we dated about a year, I went to the University of Florida, and um, she finished high school, and she worked. And we knew that we couldn't get married until I finished college, at, at the very least. So 
I studied real hard, loaded my, loaded my schedule with, with um, about 19 hours at uh, a quarter and um, did everything I could to go as fast and as good as possible so I could get out of school and um, get accepted to law school. And Marcy stayed in South Florida and worked as a dental assistant. Now, when I turned 21, Marcy and I were engaged. However, we were fooling ourselves that a believer and an unbeliever could ever happily be married. Marcy, who had been saved for many years, had, um, had um, befriended a married couple as friends. And, and um, they were both graduates, or one was a graduate, one was just about to, get, to um, graduate from the Florida Bible College. And they were on fire for the Lord. And they all were talking, and they all agreed that I needed to get saved before I could ever marry Marcy, that it was wrong for us to be unequally yoked, or her for to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. When I was, when I was home for Christmas and, or, or spring in my senior year, Marcy had arranged for us to join Andy and Joanne to uh, get together, and um, so we did. We would go to church and then back to their house and talk. It was a real hot date. Well, let me tell you, everything, everybody has a first time. Well, I had a first time of going to church. First time I went to church, I thought, literally, I was on a different planet. There was a large auditorium that was packed with happy people that were excited and um, singing hymns. They were all singing loudly and joyously, enjoying themselves. They weren't reciting rote prayers in a language they didn't understand. The sermon was thoughtful, logical, and powerful. The plan of salvation was shared, and an invitation was given. People were going forward and getting saved, whatever that was. After the service, we all went to the Mickler house. Joanne and Marcy would, would um, go, go and hide into the kitchen and, and pray. And Andy uh, and, and I would go into the living room and Andrew, Andy would make his case for Jesus and talk to me. Well, I, to be honest with you, I wasn't offended one bit. You see, at the time, I was cocky. Um, I was cocky enough to take on that challenge, and I saw it as a challenge. You see, I thought I was smarter than him. In high school, I was captain of the debate team. I was Hall of Fame for speech and debate, and I loved every minute of arguing with people and making, making them look foolish and silly. I listened closely to him as, as he spoke to me, 
and notice that it seemed like everything I said and every argument that I made, he had some kind of reply that came right out of the Bible. I went back to school to start my last quarter at the university. I was pondering all that was told and, and, and witnessed and everything that I witnessed over the last three or four months. I had to decide what to do about Jesus. At that time, I prayed. I remember praying the second most important prayer that I had ever prayed in my life. There are two prayers that I remember very clearly. I'm going to tell you about both. But the second most important prayer that I ever prayed in my life, I was alone in my room at the, in, uh, at the university. And for the first time, I actually prayed straight to God, as opposed to saying some rote prayer that I learned in Hebrew school, and I would pray in Hebrew. And, and, um, but I didn't quite understand what it meant. So I'm praying straight to God. And I said, God, I just want to know the truth. Just show me the truth. And if you show me the truth, I promise you, that I will follow the truth, and I will believe it. I promise, just show me the truth. Well, a short time went by, and I received a 96-page book anonymously in the mail. Now, I know that Marcy sent it, but it, it just arrived. And there, there, this is what was in it. It's a book that's entitled Messiah in Both Testaments. Well, <clears throat> I wasn't offended. As a matter of fact, um, I was excited to receive this. And I was excited for two very important reasons. First, I opened it up and it offered a $1,000 reward if I could prove that anything in this book was not true. $1,000 to a young Jew? That sounds like a challenge to me. What do you think? So I was willing to hold my nose and Stick it, stick it in this book in an attempt to prove it wrong. I took that challenge. Second reason why I was excited to read this book is because I felt like a football player who got a copy of the 
opposing team's playbook about two or three days before the big game. I wanted to disprove my opponent, like Andy, debating Andy. Just like in, in debate, I wanted to refute and attack my opponents and argue one point at a time. So I began to critically read this book, looking for the weaknesses in the enemy. And I remember, like it was yesterday, I'll never forget it. It was 49 years ago this month. And there I was, alone. I, I was sitting on my bed, cross-legged, with this book, in my Jewish fraternity house reading this critically to find something wrong. And after reading it for about 36 pages, I realized that for 21 years, I had been wrong. And that the Messiah promised in the Old Testament came in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. That the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent his son to take on my sins, and he died for me. There I am, sitting on my bed, in my room, in the Jewish fraternity, when I prayed and asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I don't think you can imagine the significance of that event. I'll never forget it. And I'll never get over it. Excuse me. And I don't ever want to get over it. Because I never want to take for granted what Jesus did for me. As tears are rolling down my cheeks and snot rolling down my nose <laughs> like, like it is now. I had a big old lump in my throat. I could hardly speak. I could hardly breathe. I felt like I swallowed a grapefruit. Matter of fact, that's what, exactly what I was thinking at the time. You see, 
even though Jesus Christ was a regular word in my vocabulary. And I used it every day. But God loved me so much that instead of striking me dead for cursing his holy name, he brought about circumstances. He pursued me, like you heard Pastor Jared say. He pursued me so that one day I would be in that Jewish fraternity house calling on his name to be saved. I remember that day. And I remember it was a pretty, it was ugly, and it was beautiful at the same time. I was in torment getting saved. I remember grabbing my hair. That's when I had some. I grabbed my hair and I said, I said, and I was speaking aloud. I was speaking aloud, even though I was alone. I was saying, God, I don't believe I'm doing this. I, God, I don't believe I'm doing this. I knew that I was reaching a point of no return by doing this. I knew that I would lose, lose my family. I would lose my friends. I would lose my reputation. I would lose my connection with my culture and my past. And as soon as I finished, With that prayer, asking Jesus in my heart, I didn't hear, but I felt it. But I didn't hear it, but I knew, I mean, it was plain as day, I felt a whoosh. Leave my body. I felt immediately, I felt like I was 40 pounds lighter. As though a spirit of heaviness and deception had left my body. It was like a definite sign or seal that something spiritually significant had taken place. Affecting my entire being. You know, Second Second Corinthians five seventeen says that when you're when you get saved, you become a new creation. Well, I was I was a, becoming a new creation right in front of me with my eyes wide open. You see, I I heard the word, I believed it, and I acted upon it by asking Jesus to be my savior. Hearing, believing, and acting in obedience. That's called faith. 
I exercised my faith the same way Abraham did, the same way Noah did, and Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Peter, Paul, and so many others. I heard the word, they believed in God, and they acted in obedience. I had the faith to be saved. I had the faith to face the rejection of my family. I had the faith to face the possibility of my own Jewish funeral. Because of my faith in Jesus, my Messiah, and my Lord. Every real Christian has to experience their road to Emmaus. A time and a place during life's journey that all of a sudden the blinders fall off and you finally recognize Jesus, who he really is. You recognize Jesus as the chosen one, the Messiah, the one promised by scriptures, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords. It is the time and place when you realize that for the prior years of your life you had been wrong, and that Jesus is the name above all names, that, that he took away your sins and put them on himself and granted you forgiveness and pardoned you. That no one comes to the Father but through the Lord Jesus. No one. If you heard that word, if you heard the word of God, and you believe it in your heart, you need to be obedient. An act of asking Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Pastor Jared is going to have an invitation. He's going to ask you. I'm going to ask you. Just do what I do. I did. Just say, Jesus, please save me. I recognize now, today, I need a Savior. Please. The blinders have fallen off, and whatever it takes, I believe you. I believe that you died for me. I don't know everything. I'll learn it along the way. I just know that you are the Savior, my Savior, and I receive it. And that's all you have to do. Pastor Jared's going to come and um, invite you to do the same. But when you do experience your road to Emmaus, your life and your eternity will never be the same. Praise God. So here we are, Easter Sunday. And what the truths of the scripture could be, you might be hearing for the hundredth time. You might be hearing for the 200th time. You might be hearing it for the thousandth time. That for, 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 for all these years, it's been very familiar 
been very familiar, just like driving along on the ground level and just seeing, yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's that. Yes, Jesus was born of a virgin. Yes, he's the son of God. And yet, perhaps today, figuratively speaking, we have been on the elevator and by God's grace, he is revealing to you ultimately that he and he alone is the savior of the world and that God in his love and his grace is pursuing a relationship with you. And by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, the Bible says you will be saved. And so I just want to encourage you, if that is you, there is no time that is greater than this moment. So I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to play one more song as we wrap up this morning. And I'm going to pray for us. And over the course of this song, there will be pastors who will be down front. There will be uh, an open altar if any of you would feel led to come and pray. But here's what I would just beg. I would beg that like my father-in-law did in that Jewish fraternity house at the age of 21 after realizing for 21 years of his life that he had been wrong. And he responded to God's grace and God's invitation to relationship with him. I encourage you that today would be the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. You are so gracious. You're so loving. God, I'm reminded in this text today, God, you're a God who pursues us. God, you're a God who loves us. Your word says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Your word reminds us that you demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are reminded in the word God, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, Father, right now in this moment, I pray if there is anybody here that needs to, by grace, through faith, receive you as their Lord, that in this moment, they will make that most important decision. And that for the believers in the room, we would find our hearts stirred, burning within us in your grace and the truth of your word that you've gifted to us in the scriptures. And Father, that you would find us faithful to step in obedience to whatever that step is for us, whether that is salvation, whether that is being obedient in believer's baptism, whether that is repenting of this hurdle that you just, it's just stays in your life and it's, it's hindering your relationship with Jesus. God, whatever that might be, God, may you find us obedient. And so as we pray, there will be pastors here. The altar is open. May we be responsive to how the Lord leads us today. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus name. Amen.